Yep, I'm good. You can just said my name like it shouldn't be said, but it's okay. I found it incredibly... Good morning, friends, by the way. I'm seeing a number of you for the first time in like a year, so good morning. Hello. Um, I found it extremely ironic and kind of delicious that as Ian was talking about corralling kids, his own child is like wandering around. <laughs> Great. We do need kids' church volunteers. Um, also want to let you know, I, kinda, I said this a couple weeks ago, but I want to reiterate it. Everything that we're doing right now is an experiment. Because we don't know what we're doing right now. We've never done this whole thing together. So expect new things, expect different things. And all, one of those things you might want to expect is stay tuned online. We might go to one service. And if that might actually happen next week. We, it just kind of, we're right on the edge of whether it's worth it to do two services or to make it one service and still be socially distanced. We're right on the edge. So just stay tuned online. If, you're not, if you don't get our emails, make sure you get our emails and check that out because we might just decide to go to 10 a.m. one service and, and then you might be here way early and you can help out and volunteer if that's the case. But we don't know. So stay tuned. We'll talk about it to the staff this week. Let's pray quickly. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, I believe that you are the truest thing in all of reality. That all of reality flows from you. That you are reality. That the more we discover about ourselves, the more we discover about you, the more we understand the scriptures, the more this world gets to make sense. And the scriptures are this crazy, complex thing that's not so easy to understand all the time. So would you, Holy Spirit, just do what you've been doing for thousands of years with human beings. That is, inspire us. Would you, Holy Spirit, take this ancient book, this ancient library of books, and illuminate it for us. Would you reveal some, some truths that are the most true things about the universe, about the cosmos, about humanity, about you? What I'm saying, God, is that we need your help. I need your help. And what we say collectively is what the Apostle Peter said. Jesus, where else can we go? Where else are we going to go? Because you have the words of eternal life. And so we're listening, Jesus. Amen. So this morning we are in Daniel. Last week, Shelley finished up Daniel 6. And the first six chapters of Daniel are really nice and easy and fan-friendly. They're Sunday school friendly. We, we walked through these six chapters, the first half of the book of Daniel, and it's quite familiar, right? We get a couple of really, really famous Sunday school stories in the first six chapters of Daniel. We're really acquainted with these stories, these biblical heroes, this Mount Rushmore of the Bible in the first six chapters of Daniel. And most of us stop there. 
We're about to step into, I've got these marks here that tell me not to go forward. We're about to step into the craziness. Now, most of us, I'm looking out, I, I know a lot of you, and most of us have been in and around the church for a really long time. Most of our lives, maybe, or all of our lives for many of us. And that means you're really acquainted with this book. We know it, at least we'd like to think, we know it well. We know the, the names and the characters. We know the books of the Bible. We know, we know the, the, the little intricacies in many ways. But have you ever thought, let me just ask you a real question. I mean, there are, there have been, I, I, you couldn't Google this, I've tried. How many Bible studies do you think have happened in the course of human history? Millions, right? Like maybe even billions. Who knows? But there, I mean, right now, how many people who are alive on planet Earth can say, I'm in a Bible study or I'm in a small group? How many people have dedicated their lives to studying this book? How many, I mean, I've spent the last 15 years of my life every Sunday preaching through this book. That's a lot! I'm sorry, I'm trying not to holler as much. I've heard that it doesn't translate well online. Forgive me, Facebook Live friends. That's a lot. Like, almost every Sunday, about 30 to 40 Sundays per year, for more than a decade, preaching through the Bible. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty new at this as it comes to pastors. 15 years isn't a lot. There's, there's, there's men and women who have been doing this for decades. We do this every single Sunday. Have you ever had this thought? It's kind of weird that we do this. I know pastors aren't supposed to ask questions like this. I know this is a little taboo. It's not allowed, but I don't care. Have you ever had that thought? Like, this book is a couple thousand years old. Like, the, the, the most modern, contemporary of the books of the Bible. This isn't a, just a book, by the way. I've been referring to it as a book. It's not a book. It's a library. Like, literally, it's a library of 66 different books. It's a catalog. In the most recent, the most contemporary, the most modern of all the books that we find in this library, this, this ancient library, are more than 1,900 years old. That, I mean, that's the newest. If you go back to the oldest, like scholars say the oldest parts of the Bible that we have, it's the oldest part of the Bible that we know of right now is called the Song of the Sea. That's, another, that's the way the scholars refer to the Song of Miriam, which is in Exodus 15. Are you still with me? Exodus 15. The, the, Israelite, the, the Hebrew people walk through the Red Sea and the, they're delivered from the, from, from the Egyptians. And then Miriam sings the song. It's beautiful. That is the oldest piece of the Bible that we have. And scholars date it back anywhere from the 12th century B.C. to the 16th century B.C. They don't know exactly when, but it's right around there because they can tell because of the language. It's not even in Hebrew. It predates Hebrew. So what I'm saying is that this, this library of books has stuff written in it that is about anywhere from 14 to 18,000 years old. 
That's crazy. And we base everything about our faith, most everything, on this ancient library of books. If you've ever thought critically about your faith, you've probably had thoughts like this. And the Bible, I, I, in light of the fact that it's, even in, fact, in, in light of the fact that it's ancient and it's at newest 1900, 1900 years old and at oldest 12 to, to 16 to 18,000 years old, I still feel really good about following and giving myself to the ways of the scriptures that we find in this ancient library of books. The more I learn about it, the more I love it, actually, personally. The more I, I see the humanity in it, even, the more I really, really enjoy it. And the more I learn about it, the, 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 the older I get, maybe some of you will identify with this, the more I realize how much I've got to learn. And that is never more true in the Bible than what we're going to be talking about, we're going to start talking about today. There are seven different genres in the Bible. That's something that most of us don't even think about as we engage the Bible, as we read the Bible, that what genre am I reading and how might that influence the way I interpret and think about what I'm reading? Do you know what I'm talking about? There's a number of different genres. As a matter of fact, just to kind of, again, elaborate on the ancientness of this book, the Bible, scholars say, is the first book in the history of the world that, has, that is written in prose. In other words, just when you write something, you're just kind of talking, telling a story, narrative. The Bible is the first book of, in the history of the world that we know of that has narrative genre in it, prose. We're dealing with this ancient book. And it has seven different genres. Prose is just one of them, but there's history, there's, there's prophecy, there's gospel, there's epistles, there's, prophecy, uh, there's all these different genres. And we're about to dive into the one of seven genres that is the craziest. Online, comment if you know what genre we're about to dive into. Let's give our online friends just five seconds to, to feel good about themselves and to be the first to, to comment about that genre. Now, in-person friends, what genre are we about to dive into? Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic and prophetic are very similar, and there is prophetic in the apocalyptic, but we're about to dive into apocalyptic literature. Now, when I say that, it either should freak you out or get you on the edge of the seat and order some popcorn because we're about to dive into some really crazy business. Apocalyptic literature is this, are these portions in the Bible that most of us avoid because they're just so crazy. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible is find, found primarily in what we're about to dive into in the second half of the book of, of Daniel and in Revelation. And some people love apocalyptic literature, even though they don't really understand it. 
because they think it's just this like, it's like a horoscope, it's like astrology, it's like this way to predict future events, right? That's the way, the people who love apocalyptic literature, that's why they love it, let's just be honest. And if you're listening and you just happen to be scrolling through online and that's you, we love you still. But let's just be honest, that's the way that many people approach apocalyptic literature. It's this kind of coded way of understanding when the world's going to end. But a vast majority of us in the church avoid apocalyptic literature like it's the plague because we can't understand it. It makes no sense to us. It's, there's these crazy, scary images. And it, feel, it feels like it takes a PhD to understand it. So this morning, we're going to be diving into some of the most famous apocalyptic literature in the Bible. And it's going to be, for the rest of Daniel, we're going to be in this apocalyptic literature. It's going to be these crazy images and dreams and visions that Daniel has. That God's trying to communicate something real to Daniel, to the people of God, to get them to understand what's going on in the world. And we get to try to make sense of it together. That sounds fun, right? Okay, let's, let me... Let's just get, have an example. We're going to dive in, and we're just going to read literally eight verses of Daniel 7. And I promise you, your eyes are going to get bigger and bigger as we read these. All right? So let's read. This is Daniel 7, starting in verse 1. We went through, the, again, the first six chapters of Daniel. They're not sequential. It's small, short stories, independent short stories written to encourage the people of God as they were in a time of crisis in 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 exile, completely ripped out of their, their homeland and their nation, and in, in taken over by, by the empire of the day, their stories to teach us. And now all of a sudden we get into this apocalyptic literature. In Daniel 7 it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, so we've switched kings now. Daniel, has been, he's, he's spent his whole adult life in Babylon. He's spent his whole adult life in captivity in enemy territory. He's come of age in enemy territory in Babylon, not in Israel, not in Judah, not in, not in his homeland, not in Jerusalem, not surrounded by the familiar customs and cultures. Are you with me? This is the backdrop of the book of Daniel for those of you who are, who are listening for the first time or here for the first time. The book of Daniel, is, it, it takes place during a time when Jerusalem has been overrun. It's been overrun by the, by the empire of the day. And Daniel has literally spent his whole adult life living in Babylon, living under the, re, under the reign of Babylonian enemy kings. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions that passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Oh man, I can't wait to get into this the nitty gritty of it. Not today. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. Now Finn, my... my my six-year-old, or my sixth-grade son is like, wait a minute, four great beasts came out of the sea? I'm here for this. <laughs> and he said, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. 
I want you to do your best to envision what Daniel, Daniel is seeing in these apocalyptic dreams. The first beast was like a lion. It came out of the sea and it had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth, and it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard now. And on its back, it had four wings. Why, why wings? Who knows? Why four wings, not two wings? Another mystery. Like those of a bird, this beast had four heads, a leopard that had four wings and four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that in my vision, we've had three beasts so far come up out of the sea. After that in my vision, at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, imagine this. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had, hear me now, Ten horns, iron teeth that crushes and devours its victims, tramples underfoot whatever was left that it didn't devour with its iron teeth, and it was different from the former beast. It had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, huh, there before me was also another horn, a little one which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eye eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. The word of the Lord. I mean, what do you do with that? <laughs> Good luck, Bible study fellowship. Have fun. So this morning, what I want to do, friends, is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re restrain myself and not go into the, the coded language that's in here and not talk about all the significance and meaning behind it. Behind it. That's next week. What I want to do today, I think, is actually way more important than that. What I want to do today is just try to teach you a little bit about apocalyptic literature. We'll never understand the stuff. I could try. I could. I could. I could talk through what what biblical scholars think these things mean. I could impress you with that and have you leave and be like, "Oh, Daniel seven, that was great." But that would be actually like the, I hate this old saying: the whole if you give a man a fish, he eats for a day; teach a man a fish, and he'll eat for the rest of his life. But it's true. And what I'm going to try to do today is teach you how to fish. What I'm going to try to do today is teach you about apocalyptic literature in a way that maybe doesn't freak you out so much, in a way that gives you the courage to engage with apocalyptic literature and not stand back at an at, at, at a arm's length distance because it's so weird. I want to talk about the purpose of apocalyptic literature, why it's in the Bible, why is it so weird why do, why do we have such a hard time understanding it, and why is it there? And what does apocalyptic literature even mean? 
I, I want to talk about these things so that we can actually then really engage with this apocalyptic literature and get the intent of God behind it and listen the way it's supposed to be listened to. Are you with me? Is that okay? So the first thing about apocalyptic literature that I, I, I want to tell you a couple things about apocalyptic literature. The first one is what the word apocalypse means. Apocalyptic literature doesn't mean what you think it does. When I say the word apocalypse, online comments, when I say the word apocalypse, what, do you, what does that mean to you? What is... What does the word apocalypse mean? And you guys can say it out loud. What, do you, what, what, what does apocalypse mean? The end. The end of the world. The end of the world as we know it, right? And, and, and not just the end of the world as we know it, it be, but like something happens that is destructive and changes history and reality as we know it. That's what we talk about when we talk about the apocalypse, right? I mean, entertainment, TV, movies, cinema, it's fascinated with this idea of apocalypse. Whether it's back to apocalypse now, or whether it's talking about zombie apocalypse. What's the, what's the well-known TV series, zombie apocalypse? Walking Dead. People love this stuff. I mean, my wife is fascinated with coming up with a plan for what happens in light of the apocalypse. And she'll even jokingly say, what happens if the zombie apocalypse happens? What, where do we go? What people do we need? Where do, what, what, whose house do we meet at? Like, she, she wants a real plan. Because we're fascinated with this stuff. We're fascinated with the idea that everything could change. The whole, the whole world could come to a screeching halt. I, my favorite apocalyptic movie is called The Road. Has anybody read that book or seen the movie? Especially you guys. I'm, you're welcome for this. Go see The Road. It, I, it, I, it's moving. I, I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop myself. The Road is amazing. But we're fascinated with this idea of post-apocalyptic life and what that looks like in, in the apocalypse and the end of the world and all that stuff. And we think that's what apocalyptic literature in the Bible is getting at, whether it's the second half of the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation, which couldn't be further from the truth. See, apocalypse, that means something to us as Americans, as we speak the English language. And we think that the, book of, the, the, the Bible was written in English for us. But that's just not true. When the Bible uses the word apocalypse, it means something completely different. The Greek word for apocalypse is ap apocalypsis or apocalypto. In apocalypsis, say it with me, apocalypsis. Apocalypsis or apocalypto does not mean the end of the world. Imminent destruction, it's not in there. Apocalypsis or apocalypto means literally a revelation. A revelation, an unveiling. To lay something bare, to make known. This is the first and possibly the most important thing about apocalyptic literature to understand. It doesn't mean the end of the world. It means to reveal something that was hidden. 
You guys with me? To reveal something that was hidden. So when we read the revelation of St. John in the last book of the Bible, that the, literally, the literal translation is the apocalypse of St. John. The apocalypse of St. John. And it's not saying the end of the world according to St. John. It's saying the revelation that was given to the apostle John, to St. John. Apocalypse, to unveil, to, 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 to unveil something, to reveal something. Jesus used the word apocalypse a number of times in the Gospels. We just don't know it because it's not translated as apocalypse. It's not translated as this thing that we think we know. In Matthew 11, one of my favorite, favorite things in all of the Bible, when in Matthew 11, Jesus says the famous, the, this famous announcement where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How about that one? This eternal invitation from the Lamb of God to say, are you feeling weary? Are you feeling burdened? I'm your guy. Come to me. So in Matthew 11, we have this famous verse. But right just prior to that, Jesus says this. Maybe some of you will recognize it. He says, I thank you, Father. Jesus is praying publicly. And he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've, you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned. Are you with me? Do you remember this? You've, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and learned, and you've apocalypsed them to the little children. Thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, Father, that you've, you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned, but you've apocalypsed them to the little children. Now, our translation doesn't say that, but that's the literal word. That's the Greek word that is in the Bible, apocalypsed. But what we have is that Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and that you've revealed them to the little children. Apocalyptic literature, the word apocalypse, doesn't mean in the Bible the end of the world. It means a revelation, a laying bare, an unveiling of what was formerly hidden. That is the word, that's the first thing we need to know about apocalyptic literature. It's an unveiling. So what we, the, this, here's the second thing. That's, we know what the definition of the word apocalypse in the Bible is. Now, what is apocalyptic literature? I'm just going to tell you I'm going to say it in a number of ways so that we can understand it and get it a little bit. But apocalyptic literature, whether it's in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, the book of Amos, wherever we find it in the Bible, the purpose of apocalyptic literature is right here. It's to reveal what's really happening in human history at any given moment. You guys with me? It's basically apocalyptic literature is like there's this curtain with reality and what we see in front of us in human history and in reality unfolding before us as we speak is just a little slice of reality. And then there's this curtain and there's what, all of what God sees. Are you, you, you getting me? And we can't see it. We don't know what's happening within human history and within reality. But every once in a while, God will pull back the curtain and say, hey, you, come over here. I want to show you what's really happening. This is apocalyptic literature. It's an unveiling. It's a pulling back of the curtain to show a person so that that person can then show the people of God what's really happening within human history. 
This is what apocalyptic literature is. It's not telling us about when, not primarily or not only telling us about when the end of the world will happen, when the apocalypse happens, when the zombie apocalypse happens. It's not giving us a blueprint for how to, what, what house to go to, what guns to have, what, what, what all this business. That's not what it is. It's not this horoscope or astrology pointing us to the end times. It's a pulling back of reality to show us what God sees is happening within human history. Are you with me still? This is what apocalyptic literature is. It's an unveiling. And here's the third thing. Here's the third thing we need to know about apocalyptic literature. First of all, apocalypse means a revelation, an unveiling. In apocalyptic literature, is this unveiling of what's really happening within human history. And the third thing is apocalyptic literature, these apocalyptic visions and dreams that God gives to, whether it's Daniel or the apostle John or whoever it is, it's almost always given in a moment of crisis for God's people. I want to say always, but we live in a time of fact-checking and internet, and you, like, you, maybe not always, but I'm talking 99% of the time, especially in the scriptures, when we see apocalyptic literature, it's, always, it's almost always given by God to a person to speak into the reality of the people of God in a time of crisis for the people of God. If you look at the book of Revelation, it was absolutely a time of crisis for the early church. The book of Revelation, this, this, these crazy apocalyptic visions and dreams and images were given to John the Re Revelator so that he could speak into the church when the church was in a time of intense persecution, having family members being thrown to the, to the lions, literally, having to parse whether or not you're going to say, I follow Jesus, or you're going to have your children killed. It was a time when the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor, Caesar, demanded not only allegiance, but also worship. And the people of God had to decide, am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to follow Caesar? And the, the book of Revelation, this apocalyptic literature, was, was spoken to the church where Jesus could, was addressing his church and said, I know you're feeling pressure. I know you're facing persecution. I know your lives are tur being turned upside down because of me. But I want to tell you this, and hear me now, church. If you persevere, even to the point of death, I will give you the crown of life. I know the empire of the day is forcing its will on you, and you're having to go underground. But I want to let you know that what feels like this big, powerful empire, it will ha what will happen to it in the future is what will happen to all empires. They will crumble. And see, the one who will reign on the throne and have ultimate victory forever and ever and ever without end is not the empire that has the sword and is killing you guys. It's the slaughtered lamb. That is the one who will reign, whose rule and reign will have no end. And if you persevere and follow the way of the slaughtered lamb, not the way of the empire, I will give you the crown of life. That's basically the book of Romans in about a minute and a half. Given to the early church in a moment of crisis, in the book of Daniel is the exact same thing. 
See, we've gone over this. This is going to be redundant for, for you guys who have gone, gone through the book of Daniel with us. But the book of Daniel was written at a time of crisis for God's people. They were literally overrun. The, the city of Jerusalem, which is the shining symbol of, of God's power and beauty and majesty, completely demolished. The temple where God rules and reigns and has his presence overrun, demolished. Holy sacred things taken from the temple into the temples of the false gods in Babylon. I hope I'm just giving you this picture. And then the people of God who aren't killed, some are left behind with no leaders, with no, with no purpose. And then many of the important people are taken into captivity like Daniel and his three friends. And they're forced to learn this other culture, the culture of the enemy, the language of the enemy, the religions of the enemy, the food of the en enemy. And it's all about how to exist as a persecuted people who's lost their identity, their national and cultural historical identity. God's speaking to his people in a moment of crisis. This was written in the 6th century BC, in the 500, not written in, it was written about what happened in the 6th century BC, and it was written in and to God's people in the 2nd century BC who were under a different empire. Same story, different empire. Am I going too fast? Am I making sense of this? It, it was written about when the God's people were conquered and ruled by the Babylonian Empire, and then the Persians would take over and rule and reign over God's people, and then the Greeks would take over, and that's, this was when the book of Daniel was written, and when God's people were being addressed, saying, basically, this has happened before, don't freak out, remain faithful to Yahweh. I know you're being persecuted. I know you're in crisis, but I want to give you this unveiling. I want to, I want to peel, I'm going to peel back this curtain of what's happening within reality so that you can, you can know what's happening. The, the way some scholars speak to or define apocalyptic literature is that it's like Daniel was given this mountaintop view of reality so that Daniel could see what God sees in reality both in the past and primarily in the present and even also in the future, so he could go back and tell the people of God, look, God is faithful, and if we are faithful to God, all of, all, all of what you hope and dream for will happen. It's an encouragement to the people of God in a time of crisis. This is apocalyptic literature. And the last thing, it's 958, perfect timing. The last thing. And this is really important. Last thing about apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world. It means a revelation, an unveiling. And apocalyptic literature was, was written to peel the curtain back on reality, show what is really happening within human history. And almost always at a point of crisis for God's people. Last thing, apocalyptic literature is really... Oh, no, no, two more things. Thank you, Lord. Second to last thing. The coded language, this is why it's so hard for us to understand. It's written literally in code. It's written, it's a subversive form of literature that's written in code, and this is why we freak out so much. I mean, just think of what I just read to you about 20 minutes ago from Daniel 7, through, 1 through 8, where you have this four beasts who come out of a great sea. That sea means something. 
And, and one of the beasts is a lion that looks like an eagle also. It has wings, and then the wings are torn off, and that beast gets, gets elevated, and it stands on two legs like a human being. Or then fast forward through the second and the third beast, and that fourth beast, it has iron teeth that is crushing and devouring everyone in its path and trampling on everyone who's left behind. And not only is a, fourth, is a beast that, that has iron teeth, but it has 10 horns. Why 10, not one horns? Who knows? But 10 horns. And not only does it just stop at 10 horns, but then it grows an extra horn, a smaller horn, that's covered with human eyes and a human mouth, and it speaks, it, it speaks blasphemy, basically. And we're supposed to understand this. couple things about this coded language in apocalyptic literature to help us understand it. The first thing is you don't have to be a seminarian. You don't have to go to seminary to, to, to connect the dots. You just got to know your Bible really well. This might be a little discouraging or it might be a little encouraging, but literally you just got to know your Bible really well to start to understand this coded language of apocalyptic literature because a lot of the coded language in apocalyptic literature in the Bible is taken from the Bible. Many, many things, whether it's in the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation, these symbols and metaphors are from the Bible. Let me give you a little example. Romans, or Revelation 12. Revelation 12 is this chapter that we all know. You might know it, not, not know it offhand, but in Revelation 12, we find this epic battle between a dragon and a pregnant woman. Do you guys... Does it, are you remembering a little bit? This dragon and a pregnant woman, and, and the woman gives birth, and the, she flees to the forest. There's all this, this is wild apocalyptic story. But what does a dragon and a pregnant woman remind you of? Montavious. Was that Montavious or was that Grant? My man. If you're not listening, if you're watching at home. Genesis 3. Genesis, Revelation 12 is this meta, metaphorical language that brings us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3. A dragon in ancient writing is very similar to a serpent or a snake. And a pregnant woman symbolizes Eve, the mother of all humanity. We just know our Bible, and we connect the dots, critically think a little bit, we're going to find that things like eagles and lions and powerful beasts represent power and royalty in the Bible, are spoken of in the Psalms and the prophets and all the way back through the scriptures. Horns mean something. A great sea is a biblical reference that we'll look at and consider together. But it's most of this apocalyptic literature, this coded language, is from the Bible. And the ancient people, here's, here's another thing about the coded language, it was written to people thousands of years ago. If you feel bad about yourself because you don't understand this coded language, just take a deep breath. It was written to people 3,000 years ago in a completely different nation, in a completely different culture. It meant something to them. They completely understood what this apocalyptic imagery and coded language meant. It makes sense that we don't because it's not our world. It was somebody's world 3,000 years ago in another side of the world. Just give yourself a little break. But 
By studying history, by studying anthropology, biblical scholars have begun to, to, to connect the dots and put this code and basically crack the code. And I'm not saying this stuff because I've discovered it and I'm so smart. I'm just smart enough to study the smart people. So we're gonna we're gonna do this together, this coded language. We're gonna uncover a little bit. We don't nobody knows exactly what all of it means, but we've got some really good guesses because we've done some biblical reflection, we've done some historical work. We live in an unprecedented time, friends. We we live in this magical time of biblical discovery where where scientists and, and historians and archaeologists are uncovering what truths about these ancient cultures and the history that the Bible was written in, we have this privilege of understanding the Bible in ways that people before us just didn't have. So we're going to put that to use as we engage with this apocalyptic literature in this coded language. Now the last thing, and the really important thing, here's the thing about apocalyptic literature, it's really, really hard for you and I to understand, not just because it has crazy beast with iron teeth and ten horns that grows a smaller one and that is covered with eyes and has a human mouth and says all these things. Not because of that, not because it's coded, not because it was written centuries ago. That's not the reason that we have such a hard time understanding it, friends. It's because we aren't the kind of people that this apocalyptic literature was written for. We just aren't. See, we are the people we basically, can I, I'm just, I'm going to offend some people, but I've said this, I said this at the first sermon of the series, and I'm going to say it again. We are Babylon. Like it or not, we are members of the greatest empire in the world. We are benefactors in different ways. Most of us, either in this room, most of us or most of us listening, are, are, are the powerful people that God was writing basically against and encouraging his people that this will not last forever. That's us. Apocalyptic literature, here's the fourth key. Apocalyptic literature is almost always written to marginalized people groups. And that means if you're not, if you don't find yourself in a marginalized people group, and please don't hear me as like talking through white guilt or something. That's not where this is coming from. This is just good biblical exegesis and application. Apocalyptic literature was almost always written to marginalized people by marginalized people and for marginalized people. And when you're not a marginalized person, it's really hard for us to understand the scriptures, let alone apocalyptic literature. It's kind of similar to when Jesus, God incarnate, God himself, comes to planet Earth as a human being. And the people who rejected him, the people who thought he was speaking heresy and blasphemy, were the people exactly like us. Don't miss this. Don't write this off and think this isn't me because the people who couldn't understand the subversive nature of the gospel, the people who were challenged the most and said thanks but no thanks to God in flesh were the people exactly like us. Jesus would have stood here today and he literally said, would have said this. He said this 2,000 years ago. I want to tell you religious people that... The adulterers and the people working in the sex industry are entering the kingdom ahead of you. 
The people that you see as dirty, rotten scum, the rejects, the marginalized, who can't come in these doors because they're so ashamed of themselves because of the way you've treated them. Are you listening? Those people get it way more than you do. This is not some crazy liberal interpretation of the scriptures. This is just a paraphrase of what Jesus himself said to the people exactly like us. The marginalized people, the ones who have been pushed to the edges in the margins of society, the ones who are rejected, the ones who are suppressed, the ones who don't have a voice, the ones who are powerless, those ones are the ones who the Bible is almost always addressed to and certainly apocalyptic literature is addressed to. And so friends, we need to, to humble ourselves a little bit and to realize that we just might miss the potency and the power and the scandalous, revolting nature of these words if we're really not humbling ourselves and listening. Are you still with me? I think if Jesus were here today standing in my place, he'd say, It's like you guys are reading the scriptures, but you're actually just not, you're, you're, you're blind to them. You have ears, but you can't really hear because you're listening with the wrong ears. You're listening with the ears of the empire, of the comfortable people in power. Can you humble yourself and learn from the marginalized people around you? No matter what you thought about the verdict, did you watch the news this last week and, and see people in the black community talking and hear that? Did you see how there was literal prayer on national news in these press conferences? I, at, at that moment, I was like, the black church needs to be listened to more than it is right now. I want to learn from my black pastor friends. I don't want to lead. I want to follow and I want to learn. And friends, I think that kind of posture, I'm not trying to exalt myself a little bit. I've just, I'm just starting to figure this out. I think we all need to have that kind of posture. To learn from the marginalized people around us, the people that we reject, the people that feel like they couldn't walk through those doors, those are the ones we got to learn from because those are the ones who get this kind of literature right here. So God is asking us, are you really going to be listening as you read this literature? Are you really going to be paying attention? Because there's power in it. There's truth in it that will blow your mind and challenge the way you live if you're really listening. Now, if you're listening to just have everything, just a pat on the head, a nice pat on the back, you're doing great, buddy. Keep on keeping on. Maybe go listen somewhere else for a few weeks. But if you're willing to have everything about you challenged, if you're willing to stand before the Lamb of God and say, transform me into your likeness because you are beautiful. If that's what you're saying, let's do this together because it's going to transform us. And so Jesus, we ask you now, would you humble us? 
would you remind us of what's true, what's most true? It's not about who's elected president, what party's in power, who's the governor, what mandates come out, what vetoes happen, will they break the filibuster or not? That's not what you're obsessed with. You, Jesus, when the king of kings shows up, shows up like a lamb who's been slaughtered, who's got blood all over him because he's been killed by the empire. He's taken all the violence and the force of the, that the empire can dish out and he's overcome it in the resurrection. And that is a way that I want to follow. I'm tempted and persuaded to think that the way of the universe, the way that's truest and best is the way of my political party, it's the way of the empire, it's the way of violence, it's the way of force, it's the way of power, it's the way of money, it's the way of greed. These are always right before me and I wanna repent of all of it, Jesus. I'd like to think that if they shut these doors and we had to go underground, that we would be stronger than ever before, but would you prepare us for stuff like that? Would you prepare us for moments of crisis, like we've just been living through, that we can stand and be, be elite, give our allegiance to the way of the Lamb, not the way of our political party or masks or no masks or any other garbage, but you, Jesus. So come and transform us now. Not just Bruce City Church, but your bride. Come and transform the church. Come and renew your bride, Jesus, in America. Break your bride. Humble us. Teach us from your truth. Lord Jesus, we want your ways. We want your life. We want your perspective. We want hidden things to be revealed so that we can know how to live in this world. So come and do that. In Jesus' name.